0: we really care about sentencing in light of actual culpability, right? Which I really think is what Gladue is about, right? That that would profoundly change our analysis of sentencing. And that, you know, if we truly understand where people come from, we often do get to a place of seeing that they are, you know, deserving recipients of rehabilitation, of humane treatment, and of ultimately forgiveness.
1: Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden protectors of social order and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? and how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. This week, our podcast brings you Professor Lisa Kerr from Queens University Faculty of Law in Kingston. Lisa's expertise takes us to the concrete corridors and confines of prison law and the law of sentencing in Canada. Her experience with prisoners, legal services, and extensive pro bono work in this field offers us a unique and raw perspective on conditions and treatment for inmates housed in Canadian jails and penitentiaries. In addition to her extensive knowledge in prison law, Lisa is an activist for social change in the areas of decriminalizing sex work and solitary confinement. It therefore comes as little surprise that Lisa's influence in the law, teaching, and even social media is wide-reaching. Join us. As we open up her influence into podcasts in this episode of Love Counsel. Before we begin today's podcast, I want to give a special thank you to our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. LexisNexis Canada is a publisher of Halsbury's Laws of Canada, the premier legal reference in the world of common law. The volume of Halsbury's Laws of Canada on penitentiaries, jails, and prisons was reissued in March 2018 and provides a review of the law pertaining to federal penitentiaries, provincial and territorial prisons, and the rights and obligations of prisoners. It examines all the pertinent legislation, regulations, and case law regarding a variety of topics under Canadian criminal law. For more information. Visit lexisnexis.ca slash bookstore and search for Halsbury's Laws of Canada. Now let's take us to our podcast with Lisa Kerr. So I'm here with uh, Lisa Kerr, uh, professor at Queen's University, a specialist and one of the leading academics in prison law and sentencing law in Canada. And this is a very uh, interesting area of law and very few people have the expertise you do. And so that's why I'm I'm very fortunate to have you on our podcast. I'm really really appreciative of you joining us. Um, My first question is what I ask everyone, Lisa, how did you get into law? Why are you here today?
0: Well, I think I went to law school originally for many of the same reasons that my students go. They, um, you know, they're interested in learning how to make a living, um, but, and they're not necessarily, you know, the science or medicine types. Uh, So I didn't show up at law school with a very clear idea of what I wanted to get out of this profession. But for me, the really key moment was making the decision to take a break from practice uh, when I was a young associate and go to NYU to do an LLM. Mm-hmm. And that was a real turning point for me because I discovered that I was very interested in the criminal justice system, which really wasn't something uh, I was very interested in when I first went to law school. And then ultimately that led me to, to move from commercial litigation to working on uh, litigation on behalf of inmates.
1: Was there anyone in particular that you either worked with or were in school with that you thought that kind of motivated you into prison law or was it um, criminal justice in general?
0: You know, amazingly, even though I went to UBC, I didn't really discover the brilliance of Professor Michael Jackson while I was there. I sort of saw him from a distance and I heard he was a a great criminal law professor. Um, But it really wasn't until I got to NYU and I took a class with uh, David Garland, who's a very well-known sociologist of punishment and who's written important books on the death penalty and sort of the politics of criminal justice in modern societies. And I took a class with him and it was about the death penalty. Um, But I I very quickly realized that when you study punishment, you get to study uh, economics, the design of political institutions, uh, history, race relations, psychology, all these topics, uh, you know, that I was interested in really came together on this question of how do we punish? Who do we punish? What does it look like? And so from there, I sort of realized, you know, started to realize some of the really brutal facts about the U.S. prison system. And as I returned turn to practice in Canada I started to look for a job where I might get to work on these issues.
1: Mm-hmm. Did you think there was ever a crossroads where this could have went a very different way, like either in academics or just not getting into law at all?
0: For me, the real crossroad moment was when I was supposed to leave NYU and go back to Faskins, where I had been a very happy articling student and young associate. I really liked the group I practiced with there, John Greve and Kibben and Jackson, these insolvency lawyers. And they were good enough to hold my job for me during the year I was in New York. And the idea was I would just come back after sort of just advancing my legal education a little bit. And at the end of that year, I had to phone uh, my boss and say, actually, I'm going to go take a job as staff lawyer at Prisoner Legal Services. And, you know, I went from a beautiful office in downtown (laughs) Vancouver that overlooked the English Bay to, um, you know, a small legal aid office in Abbotsford that overlooked a recycling bottling, uh, you know, a bottle recycling depot. Yeah. And it was a two-year contract, you know, not particularly secure work, um, And it was a very difficult decision to make because I'm fairly risk averse and uh, I didn't really know what it would be like to practice law in this area.
1: This is something that, you know, I I think a lot of younger lawyers struggle with, and the idea that. Especially in criminal law, or they'll get into immigration law. Usually, it's a type of law that's dealing with people, and they'll they'll find that they have a passion for it, that they want to help people in some way or another. But because they've done very well in school, and you know they're on Bay Street and they've got the security, um, what would you say to a lawyer who has made perhaps the same type of trepidation you did when you were making this decision?
0: Well, the first thing I would say is that I completely relate to that and empathize with it, and and that I think it can be very, very valuable for young lawyers, new law graduates, to go to big firms and to go to you know the absolute best, most prestigious job they can find and work really hard and learn how to litigate at a high level. Mm-hmm. You know, I've now done you know some hiring in, in sort of the social justice field, and it's awesome when we get someone like that who's three or four years in who totally. knows. Knows how to run a case and who is now making that turn to doing work that maybe, you know, is going to be possibly, you know, more interesting, more engaged with people, um, more reformist. I would say that that's a perfectly good path or maybe they stay in private practice uh, for their careers, but maybe they're someone who could contribute to a piece of pro bono litigation and support the work of social justice-minded lawyers in that way. So I'm really not very judgmental about, about the choices people make. And I completely understand, right, that you you need economic security. Um, but I would say, you know, I'm very, very glad that I made that decision. And I think, you know, subsequently doing a doctorate. Um, it was very informed by the work that I did at Prisoner Legal Services. My scholarship is, is I think, much much stronger because of um, my experience working in institutions on behalf of inmates, um, knowing what the legal theories of punishment actually look like in practice. Um, you know, so I'm very glad I made that decision, but it was difficult to make, and 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 I think um, I can certainly understand the, you know. The pull that young lawyers have toward um, more secure and traditional forms of practice, especially right. in the early years.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about your um, academics because you, you're highly educated. You did your L.L.M. Uh, beyond law school, and then your J.S.T. at N.Y.U. Um, why did you decide to take this path into academics? Because here you are working at a legal aid clinic. You could have just said, you know what, this is good enough. I'm going to deal with the individual rather than the macro. Is there a reason that you you decide to push it into bigger issues and perhaps reform?
0: So I do think it's an important. important... Important question, especially when you're a scholar working on a topic like prison law. You know, would would the field be better served by you being on the ground on a daily basis, meeting the legal needs of inmates, um, you know, doing strategic litigation where you can, but really being involved in the field? And I I remember my former boss at Prisoner Legal Services, Jennifer Metcalf. She said to me, "Are you sure you want to do this? You know, here here you can be here and you can be in institutions and really assisting people on a daily basis." Um, and I, 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 to this day, I think she might have been right, that that is the most noble path. Um, for me, I, I did want to have that opportunity to step back, to read more widely in the field, um, to, to study the Canadian system comparatively with the United States, and, and just to sort of, um, you know, move into that scholarly space where I'd have a chance to take a little bit more of a bird's eye view at the system that we have in Canada the nice thing with being a law professor, of course, is that you can still uh, be engaged with cases and with litigation. And I think law schools value that kind of contribution uh, from their faculty. And so I have been able to, to stay a little bit involved with, with active cases. And, and I really absolutely love that part of my job.
1: Is there anything in particular you really miss about practice, like those those times where you're dealing with the individuals?
0: Definitely. I think that um, practice, especially in this area, it's very, very grounding to actually be connecting and talking to and hearing from incarcerated people. Mm-hmm. You just have so much more knowledge that is authentic and real. I love talking with my students at Queen's who are doing the prison law clinic because they're doing that work on a daily basis and they're telling me exactly what's going on in the institutions right now, what their clients are experiencing. And I find that very motivating. I also miss about practice though that you know, you're gaining so many skills when you're litigating cases. And I look at my friends, you know, I look at my friend, Aline Sigurdsson, who I went to law school with. She's at Mandel Pinder now. We article together, we clerk together. And I mean, she is just, she's doing really big cases. You know, she acted for Upper Nicola Band uh, in Trans Mountain. I mean, she's in court all the time. She's this very, very skilled litigator. And I really do not have those skills anymore. Um, So I look around at friends of mine who are, who can run a whole case now and who've been to the Court of Canada several times, and I think, oh, I guess I'm that old. <laughs> uh, if I'd stuck with that path, I would be doing that too potentially. Um, so that's you know you do you do step out of that skills accumulation process, right. and instead, I now teach you know the same subject every year, mm-hmm. um, and that that is. Quite different, I think, than practicing lawyers who are just you know bouncing from area to area and dealing with client needs that arise. And so my job is is a little bit repetitive on the teaching side. Mm-hmm. That has its upsides, but also downsides. So let
1: me flip that a little bit. If you were to return to practice. Uh, You know, you you talk about your friends with all these litigation skills, but if you were to return to practice, what do you think academics could contribute to that? How would you now have a better perspective returning to litigation as you were before?
0: I mean, I'll I'll give you a very concrete example of something that I've been working on and thinking about for the last few years, which is sentencing hearings. Mm-hmm. So I'm very interested in the relationship between sentencing and prison conditions. And I actually think there's a lot of work that counsel can be doing at a sentencing hearing to to really notify the judge of what is going to happen next for this particular client Mm -hmm. and to really think about what individual vulnerabilities and traits does my client have um, that might make prison more or less severe for this person. Um, What special needs do they have? What programming needs do they have? What security level are they likely to be classified at? Um, It may be that you should be thinking about, you know, how Gladue factors should interact with those issues. And so I think there's some very you know, important, deep, conceptual questions to ask about what we're doing when we're sentencing it, particularly to imprisonment. And how counsel might be able to deepen their sentencing submissions, given those concerns that arise from the prison context. And so I think, you know, I don't, I think defense counsel oftentimes are, the sentencing hearing is sometimes a little bit of an afterthought, or it's something where, you know, we emphasize the standard factors, my client's very young. So rehabilitation is important here, but not really thinking about, you know, what is is going to happen next for my client and how can I sort of implore the court to exercise its sentencing jurisdiction and write its reasons, which are going to be carefully considered in the correctional context, um, with those concerns in mind. So, you know, I've had a chance to think deeply and carefully mm. about those issues for a few years and to study the prison and think about how that might relate to sentencing. And that's not something that defense counsel really gets the luxury of, of thinking about very often.
1: No, it's true. It's a very binary process. You know, how long is a person going to jail for? Are there DNA orders in place? And that's usually it. And you're you're right. It is often an afterthought and one that we perhaps even ignore because we think, hey, maybe your client will be acquitted or something like that. I want to thank you for that. But, you know, let's just back up a little bit because, you know, there's a lot of our listeners are criminal defense lawyers and they they at least think they understand about sentencing law, but a lot aren't. And can you just tell us in sort of a very basic way, what is prison law or what is sentencing law? What exactly is that sort of area of practice all about?
0: Well, I think the really important idea here is that our system is premised on the idea that where a judge sentences to incarceration, that the sentence is the deprivation of liberty, right? That's really the underpinning of our system, that the punishment is the length of time that you are sent into custody. And so sometimes we say this phrase, you're sent to prison as punishment, not for punishment, And that reminds us, it's the length of time that the liberty is deprived that is meant to be the punishment. What that means is prison conditions are not meant to be punitive, right? It's the time liberty is deprived. That's why a longer sentence is a more severe one and a shorter one is is less severe. And I think what that deprivation of liberty concept really means is that there's supposed to be a lot of uniformity and equality in the administration of sentences. So there, okay, so if we agree with all of that, now turn to the prison law context and ask, you know, does prison law deliver that vision of uniformity and equality? And um, those of us who know about the prison context know that we're very far from living up to that ideal. The prison experience varies for different people. Um, It's often more severe for people with disabilities. It's often more difficult for women. We know that indigenous people do worse on every index in the correctional context. And we know that while, at, at least in this day and age, we know that prisoners have charter rights, the same, actually, as everyone else, right? There's no civil or social death for inmates the way the way there was for much of the history of the modern penitentiary. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the meaning of charter rights in the prison context, I don't think we've actually had very much litigation on that. We know, of course, that, that prisoners are entitled to judicial review, which is basically the idea that corrections has to implement the legislation that governs them in a reasonable way. But there's a lot left over there. There are many gaps in terms of how law governs the prison. And I think we're very far away from the presumption at sentencing that the length of time someone is incarcerated will be the punishment. The reality is, many other things that arise from the prison context will determine the severity of the punishment. That means this principle of proportionality that we're so committed to in our system, that the code is committed to, and so much jurisprudence affirms, really doesn't govern the administration of punishment in our system.
1: So, I want to ask you a question about you. you mentioned something about charter rights um, in the prison context, and you know, I think there's a there's a perception uh, among perhaps a populist perspective that prisoners shouldn't have rights, or maybe even a perspective that they don't have rights. Let me ask you, in in a proper legal context, what, quote-unquote, rights do prisoners actually have in Canada?
0: Well, we might turn to the Sovey decision for guidance on that. Of course, that was a case about Whether prisoners should be able to uh, vote while incarcerated. There are only, I think, two U.S. states that allow incarcerated people to vote while they're in custody. And then there are about 15 or so U.S. states that permanently disenfranchise people who have felony convictions. So, you know, that's how the U.S. has dealt with that question. And it came up for us um, because we had longstanding laws throughout the 20th century that said if you're incarcerated, you cannot vote. Then we get the charter and the question is, is the right to vote protected in Section 2? Is that also a right that prisoners have? And that was, a, I always remind my students, that was only a 5-4 decision, um, the second Sovey case upholding the right of prisoners to vote. So we were close to going in a more American direction on that issue. But what the court said there was, you know, there's nothing in the text of Section 2 that says prisoners don't get this thing. And if the government wants to justify infringing this right, which prisoners hold, um, then they have to do it uh, with something more than a theory. Right. So the government in sove said, well, if we if we take away the right uh, for inmates to vote, it will teach them the lessons of democracy. Right. They'll learn that, you know, by breaking the law that they've law, you know, they've broken the social contract. And so they'll be more likely to abide by the laws in future. And the majority judgment said, well, maybe or maybe the opposite. Right. Maybe it'll teach them actually. Right. That they're not part of this social contract and that they don't even get to vote for the officials who are making so many decisions important to their lives. So what the majority said there, if you're going to infringe the charter rights of inmates, it's the same analysis as for other Canadians. It's a very robust empirical analysis under Section 1 of the Charter if you're going to try to justify a rights infringement. So Sove I think, suggests to us that prisoners are in the exact same position as other Canadians with respect to charter rights. But of course, you know, the scope of the right is always going to be interpreted in light of the prison context.
1: Right. So, you know, for for example, reduce privacy and things like that. It also has to be put into that context. We talked a little bit about the rights. Some, what are some of the practical risks that inmates face in Canada that you've seen firsthand or that you've learned through your studies?
0: Um, I, I think the main risk that flows from being incarceration, um, that flows from incarceration, it has to do with health. I think um, there are significant health effects, and that's something I don't you know, I don't think we talk about that much. Mm-hmm. That your life expectancy goes down when you are incarcerated. Your risk of contracting certain diseases goes up, um, and that's notwithstanding our ability to prevent that kind of illness. You know, the C- Office of the Correctional Investigator reports that it's its top category of complaint every year. This is the Prisoner Ombudsman Office in Ottawa. Their top category of complaint every year is healthcare. Um, so people have trouble getting medication. They have trouble getting treatment. Um, we have many aging people in our prison system. So, you know, and oftentimes these are these are groups of people who haven't had great access to healthcare in their life leading up to prison. And so they often have the accumulation of issues. So I actually think, you know, a prison sentence interacts with your, your physical and mental health in very significant ways.
1: When we look at imprisonment of, of Canadians, um, there's a lot of controversy, there's always controversy, and some see the prisons as far too lenient, and some others, um, mostly those far more familiar with what actually happens in them, feels that the conditions are rather inhumane. So uh, my question is, where do you think this controversy comes from? Why do people care so much about how people are treated or mistreated once convicted of crimes?
0: Yeah, so there's an idea in this field um, that's called the principle of less eligibility, and this is basically the idea that prison conditions should be slightly worse than the conditions of the lowest rung of the working class, right? So sometimes this principle is cited as sort of, you know, an ideal that we should make sure that prisons are no better than that. And sometimes historians have used it as sort of a descriptive idea that, that, that in history, when prisons go above that in terms of conditions, then there's a critique and the prison conditions will be scaled back. Um, And I think what that reminds us of is that there is a real relationship between the prison and the labor market, and that the modern penitentiary has been used to discipline recalcitrant participants in the labor market. Mm -hmm. And we do, you know, it's there to ensure the good conduct and work ethic of some of the most marginalized people in our society, you know, and if prisons are considered to be, you know, places where you can get dental care and other, and, and post-secondary education, right, then you begin to hear that critique, right, that life is better in there than it is for me, and I can certainly understand why people would ma- advance that critique, right, they're working hard and abiding by the rules, and I just think it's an important reminder of how Prison conditions are tied to social conditions generally. You know, it's very hard in the United States. There are areas where people have so little access to health care to then argue for and litigate for inmate access to health care. So it's just, it, to me, it's, you know, I don't have a particularly clear answer for you other than to say I understand the dynamics of this conversation. And it, it's to me a reminder that we're kind of all in this together mm-hmm. and that working for you know, a guaranteed livable income in society is connected to the work that the prison reformers do, I think.
1: So pushing that controversy a little bit further, um, it's good timing with this interview because uh, just a couple days ago, yesterday, in fact, it even heated up more. There's a lot of controversy over uh, Terry, Min, Terry Lynn McClintock, uh, Tory Stafford's killer, arguing that when, where she was transferred to from the high security institution in Kitchener to the uh, uh, Okama Ochi Healing Lodge. And a lot of people are saying this is far too soft. And we see, you know, a lot of political rhetoric coming out of this in in the Legislative Assembly. And what are your thoughts? You know, having someone with this expertise in in prison law, when you're hearing this sort of rhetoric going around, what were you thinking?
0: Well, first, to me, you know, that is an extremely distressing case. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a new mother, and it's very painful to think about the risks that your child faces in the world. And I, I, I can well understand uh, the public reaction in this particular case. I do think that some of the political reaction has has been a little disappointing. And that, you know, I expect different things from politicians than I do from the public on this, on a file like sure. this one, right? right? And I think that our government could do a little better to just use this as an opportunity to clarify how our system works. And so to me, I look at that case, and this is someone who pled guilty to first-degree murder and who has been in custody for nine years, spent five of that uh, classified maximum security And as I understand, was in maximum or medium security for all nine years that she's been in custody. She's someone who is, because she stands convicted of first-degree murder, she's under a sentence of life imprisonment. There will never be a time when she's not under correctional control. She may have some eligibility for day parole at 22 years and parole at 25 years. So her ability to be released into the community is a long time in the future and, and and, and not necessarily certain. No. So nine years in at, at being a high level of security, there's clearly been a decision made that getting her some programming that's culturally appropriate is a suitable decision at this stage. Now, how is someone's how is that transfer decision made? Well, there's legislation that governs this decision making and, and corrections looks at um, your risk to public safety, your risk of escape, and your institutional adjustment. So, how are you doing in the custodial context? And you have to do very well on all three of those in order to be eligible for a transfer. It also bears emphasis that this healing lodge, you know, the words healing lodge might be a bit misleading to the public. Um, this is a federal penitentiary this is not a program in the community. This person is remains in custody um, for a very long sentence. And it, it would actually be quite difficult for her to have earned the right to, to be transferred to this healing lodge. And she would have to commit to a very serious and rigorous program. And um, she's at constant risk of being transferred back to medium or maximum security. So mm-hmm. this is the system we have. We We do punishment. We do separation of offenders from society, but at this point in our history, and of course this could change, but at this point in our history, we remain committed to the idea that people may be able to be rehabilitated. Mm -hmm. And so that's clearly what corrections is up to here. And I I do wish that some of the... The, of our political representatives had, had, you know, taken a little more care to explain those issues.
1: Right. So what do you think is one of the biggest misunderstandings that Canadians have about our prison system?
0: This is actually a question I get asked quite often. And to me, the answer is, I think people think what happens to you in prison is connected to your offense. You know, that that if you go to maximum security, it's because you did something worse. Or if you're placed in solitary confinement, it's because your offense was, you know, such a threat to public safety. And the truth is, is that prisons are administered according to their own logic and preferences, right? And it's what matters most to prison officials is not the offense you stand convicted of, but how you are performing in the custodial context, And again, this, to me, gives rise to a thought about how prison administration is so disconnected from the concerns that animate a sentence. You know, I think about, if you remember the 1987 case, Smith, that struck down a mandatory sentence. Um, So there was a seven-year mandatory we had on the books for importing. And this case, R.V. Smith, really the first charter case on Section 12 the court said, uh, no, that could be grossly disproportionate in some reasonable hypothetical. And in that decision, the court said, and this was the first case on the meaning of cruel and unusual punishment uh, and the protections that Canadians have against that kind of punishment. And the court said, a sentence can be rendered grossly disproportionate not only by being too long, right, not only by its length, but also the conditions under which it is administered. Mm -hmm. And the court said, 20 years for jaywalking would be grossly disproportionate, but so too with three months in solitary for a minor offense. And I find that so interesting because it's sort of a mention in the case and it's, but it's actually, it's not really part of our system. The idea that what happens to you in custody is supposed to be linked to your culpability. That's actually not part of our system. And I mean, cases like Ashley Smith remind us of that.
1: Right, right. Have you been to any prisons yourself to visit people or anything like that? See them in there?
0: Yeah, I've been to many prisons, you know, U.S. prisons like Danbury uh, and Sing Sing here in Canada, out west, been to Mountain, Matsque, Kent, Fraser Valley, some provincial institutions and um, obviously Kingston Penn and Joyceville mm-hmm. around here. Yeah. I don't
1: know if it was the same for you, but, you know, for me, walking into a prison for the first time is a very surreal feeling and some something that lasts What is something that you think you can only experience by going to these prisons that would be lost upon the general public?
0: I think uh, the main takeaway from visiting a few prisons is the variation between them, Mm. Uh, that their physical geography is so different, that, you know, just the character of the place, everything that flows from, you know, just the construction of the facility and the space they have and the you know the resources that they have and just realizing wow they're quite different from one another and so the meaning of punishment is so different according to where you're sent mm-hmm. So I think that point about variation um, is is an important one. Um, you go to one place and you know they don't rely on segregation you go to another one and this segregation unit is an absolutely disturbing filthy place mm-hmm. and you just think, you know in a rule of law system right i don't think there's supposed to be that level of variation again it's supposed to be the deprivation of liberty not whether you serve your time in kent egg. right and so that's one thing that strikes me and then i guess the other thing is i always feel so exhausted when i leave and just you know how physically tired you know there's typically a, a lack of natural light there's you know there's a sense that there's not that much sort of fresh air it's so grim and so i and i think about it's not just inmates living here it's all the employees and the contractors and prison officials who are who are spending so much of their lives inside these very draining grim facilities
1: do you think that real life perspective is essential for players in the justice system to make proper decisions in particular judges and crowns to be going to visit prisons and really see what these things are about
0: I do think that's important and you know I do work a little bit with the National Judicial Institute which runs a program called Judges to Jails where uh, federal and provincial judges have the ability to sign up for the program and there's a week of curriculum
1: so it's not mandatory though.
0: It's not mandatory and you know I I would not be in favor of mandatory education like this because I think that's just incompatible with the independence of our judiciary. Sure. But I'm told that this is one of the most popular programs that the NJI runs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my experience being involved with this program for a couple of years, I mean, these judges are very thoughtful, very careful, learning all that they can. And really the main point of this program, I think, is to ensure that judges aren't relying on background assumptions about what programming is available or isn't available and so on in making sentencing decisions. And so I really think at the end of it, you know, judges just are are much more aware of some of the difficulties with accessing programs, some of the differences between institutions in terms of variation. So I think programs like that are extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. And I, I, would, I would be certainly in favor of crowns. And I, and I understand that many crowns do have that as part of their training.
1: From what I see, it's often going not really sort of doing a tour of empty cells as opposed to actually seeing what these people are going through. But
0: That's the thing, too. There's a real politics of prison tours, Mm -hmm. right? If you go into these places, you always want to ask to see segregation. And you always, always want to make sure that you're interviewing inmates and talking to inmates so that you're not just getting the sort of official – um, the official tour of like the best programming room in the whole place, and you and you you're left wondering how often is anyone even in there.
1: So let's talk about that segregation because this has been in the news quite a bit lately. Um, there was a challenge recently that was successful. Um, tell tell me a little bit about segregation, your understanding of it, how it's implemented in Canada, and whether or not there's need for improvement on that.
0: Right, so the basics here are that segregation or what some people call solitary confinement that there's two kinds of it that we have in our federal system. Uh, One kind is called administrative segregation and the other is called disciplinary segregation. So disciplinary segregation is for when an inmate um, is accused of breaking a prison rule. So, you know, having contraband or breaking a rule of some kind. And when you're accused of that, we actually have a very good system in Canada. We've had it since 1992, some legislative reforms that we got then. And in our system in Canada, and this is really is much better than anything I've ever discovered in the US. You have a presumption of innocence. The standard is reasonable doubt. You get a hearing, you're in front of an independent chairperson, and you have access to counsel. It's not necessarily legal aid, although there is some legal aid in Ontario and BC. So you really do have a, a close to, certainly not quite at the level of a criminal trial, but some important procedural rights. And then if you're found guilty, you can be placed in segregation and it's time limited, maximum 30 days. So these this litigation that's been going on around solitary confinement is not about the disciplinary system. Mm -hmm. That system's pretty good. Uh, Likely, you know, charter compliant, maybe not in the provincial systems, but federally pretty good. Administrative segregation is very different. It, it's 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 not. It's unclear to inmates what it is that they have to do wrong in order to be placed in administrative segregation, because the legislation says you can be placed there for any reason having to do with the safety and security of the institution, um, and a couple other very vague, broad reasons. And there's no t- there haven't been time limits since we got these laws in 1992, and so. You're placed in there. You don't know exactly why. You don't know exactly how to get out. There's no hearing in front of that independent decision maker. Um, There's only these internal segregation review boards conducted by prison officials reviewing the decisions of other prison officials. Um, So very little procedural fairness, no time limits. And we know the data is very clear on this, that, you know, something like 90, 95 percent of segregation placements in the federal system are under that administrative category. And it doesn't take a lawyer to figure out why, right? It's because of course, yeah, yeah. There's so many more protections and rights, and it's such it's it's a it's a it's a lot more trouble for corrections to accuse you of a disciplinary offense and, and give you all those procedural. Yeah, I, I wonder
1: why corrections would even do it at all through the disciplinary context if they can just move quickly to the administrative.
0: Yeah, it's a bit curious. It may be that in some cases, you know, they really do think this is not about safety and security, about but about a sort of isolated instance of wrongdoing. Um, it may be, you know, that some corrections officials think we should. You know, they buy into the procedural fairness that attends disciplinary court, right? Right. And it may be also that they want a disciplinary offense on someone's record for parole purposes and Mm -hmm. so on, Mm -hmm. whereas administrative segregation is is formally not punishment for wrongdoing, but is considered uh, an administrative regime. So there could be reasons why corrections would want to go the disciplinary route at times.
1: So where do you see the corrections coming there? How can we fix that administrative overuse?
0: Well, I think the main things that that people have been saying in recent years, and that really informs these two cases that have now been decided in BC and Ontario, is the idea that there needs to be more of a review of administrative segregation placements. There needs to be time limits. That BC Court held that um, that there needs to be time limits. That time that corrections could manage to operate with time limits, and there need to be um, s- rules that, that prohibit corrections from placing mentally ill people in segregation. That's what the BC court uh, really determined, that this form of confinement is s- so destructive for people who already have mental health problems right. that there should be a prohibition. On corrections making use of it for those people. Is
1: this where we saw some of the controversies that arose out of the Ashley Smith inquiry? Was that an administrative segregation that was going on or?
0: It was administrative segregation in her case and um, it was actually in her particular case it, even the, the minimal laws that are on the books were not followed. So for example you're entitled to these 30-day reviews of your administrative segregation status and then 60-day review at the regional level. So someone who's not sort of inside the hothouse environment of that particular prison is supposed to look at a segregation placement at the 60-day mark. And what Corrections would do in her case was transfer her before the 60 day mark. Mm. Now her segregation status was never alleviated in those transfers, but the clock would start at zero at the next institution. So not only was she held in administrative segregation for many, many months as a young person with mental health needs, but she was also involuntarily transferred so as to avoid what minimal protections there were for her. So, I mean, coming out of the Ashley Smith case and the devastating and needless situation of her death, you know, there's really been an awakening in Canada, I think publicly, politically, legally, an awakening as to the need for better controls on this practice, better legislation. And so now we've seen, of course, two trial courts say, and for different reasons, but to say that the current laws are unconstitutional and and those decisions are both under appeal and are likely to wind up at the Supreme Court of Canada.
1: Hmm. I want to ask you a question about mandatory minimum sentences. This is um, something that happened uh, with the last government. A lot of mandatory sentences came into effect, uh, and now it's a point of controversy in that the Liberal government came in, and there was thought that a lot of these mandatory minimum sentences would be reduced. From your perspective, as you know, someone who's very familiar with this area of law, Are mandatory minimum sentences effective? Do you see the benefit in them? Or is this something that does really need to change? Are the advocates against them right?
0: I personally find it very difficult to say something about mandatory minimums in general. Mm -hmm. I think that to have a sensible conversation, we have to be a little offense specific. And it really matters, you know, how is the mandatory triggered? Is there any discretion? Um, You know, does the Crown have a discretionary decision to make there? That can alleviate some of the... Uh, downsides of mandatorys, if there's some discretion, if not judicial discretion.
1: Sure, because there's a big, for example, there's a big difference between a mandatory minimum sentence of an impaired driving where one loses their license automatically for a year, as opposed to, you know, a small amount of particular type of drug, and it's a one year sentence, even someone who has a very small amount.
0: Definitely. And, um, you know, so there's a, there's a conversation we have to have about what the punishment is, what the effects of that punishment will be. What the offense is, whether whether the design of the mandatory, whether there's any discretion retained to avoid it in cases where, you know, the circumstances of the offender really don't call for it. Right. So we have to be a little specific there. Personally, you know, I think drug mandatories don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, They're being picked off one by one. Um, I think they're all unconstitutional, just because the circumstances of drug offenses are so variable. And there's, it's so often the case that addiction and socioeconomic circumstance are, play into drug offending. And so I think we want full judicial discretion to respond to those kinds of situations. Um, and I also think deterrence you know, is absolutely nonsense when we're talking about drug offenses. Right. So, but I think a different conversation, right, needs to happen about, say, the mandatory sentences for first and second degree murder, mm-hmm. which I actually think are among the most unjust in our system. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure that they're, you know, even when the liberals said that they were, were going to do some reform in this area, I don't think they were talking about murder sentencing. No. But I will say, you know, the bill that Senator Kim Pate has on, that she's working on right now to restore judicial discretion, it would extend, you know, in just and appropriate circumstances and with the judge giving reasons and so on, um, it would extend actually to murder sentencing as well. And and so with murder sentencing, there's a couple of things to say. The sentences are very long, and this is the kind of offense that can be committed in such a variety of ways and with such variety of levels of culpability. So we, we, you know, we might think of the first degree murderer of, you know, we might think of the Paul Bernardos and the Robert Pictons of the world, but this is an offense that can also be committed. First degree murder can also be committed by, and this is an example that, that Deb Parks used in a, in a recent Globe and Mail editorial on this topic. It could be a 19-year-old indigenous woman who kills her abusive drug dealer, Right, and that's where you know, obviously there's some charging discretion and so on that might be exercised to make it second degree murder or even a manslaughter plea bargain. And so there's there's some issues there. But technically that could generate a twenty-five year in custody sentence followed by a lifetime of correctional supervision. And I, I'm very critical of the murder sentencing regime, but I I understand that consistency across cases. Um, is an important principle in sentencing as well. And there are times when that is what motivates mandatory minimum sentences.
1: But is there even a disconnect? You know, when you look at the way sentences are applied across Canada, it seems to me there is a lot of similarities for similar types of offenses. I Mm. mean, there is parity among it. And when you look at the way politicians discuss mandatory minimum sentences, you would think that judges have just gone wild and decided to impose anything, even in cases of second-degree murder. And I, I do you not see that as a bit of a um, false problem that's been created to address why they're implementing these?
0: I completely agree with that, Sean. And, you know, during the you know, the Harper decade, mm-hmm. this was when this r- discourse was at its height, right? And it was exactly as you say, it was this idea that um, judges have all this discretion, and they're completely ungoverned, and they just do whatever they want. And there's just, you know, leniency run amok. And of course, those of us in the system know, number one, there's uh, the common law <laughs> <laughs> right. is controlling them. Um, appellate review is controlling them. And that, in you know, the vast majority of cases are resolved with some kind of, Resolution agreement where the Crown and defense are taking positions as well. So the discretion of the judge is is very corralled by all of those factors. Compare it to the United States in the 1970s before they shifted, especially in their federal system, to highly structured sentencing legislation. Um, You know, in the 1970s, in most states, if not all, and in the federal system, there was almost no appellate review. Sentence ranges were all over the place. Um, Sentencing was very indeterminate. There, oftentimes, you would just announce in court a range of a sentence, like five to fifteen, and then it was up to corrections to decide when to release you. Um, That was a very rehabilitative system, but there was very little truth in sentencing. There was very little control over judicial discretion. And what's interesting about that period is that many on the on the sort of liberal end or the progressive end of the political spectrum were very critical of that situation. Why? Because they thought there was so much discretion in the system that judges and parole boards could bring in all kinds of inappropriate arbitrary preferences like racist and classist preferences. And so, you know, you'd see a sentencing in one courtroom in Brooklyn for a drug courier, you know, in the 15-year range and then the other the next guy getting 1 year and the sense that race and class were feeding into that a lot. Mm-hmm. And so that was a situation where the discretion was truly uncontrolled by appellate review. Um, And, of course, the pendulum very much swung in the other direction. And and not only did they get many many more mandatory sentences, particularly in the federal system, but they moved to guideline sentencing with very little ability for judges to exercise discretion in light of the circumstances of the offender. They also prohibited almost every circumstance of the offender from being relied on at sentencing. So. You know, that's not the system we have. Our judges are controlled by various mechanisms. And so, you know, the point you make is a fair one that do we really need mandatories to achieve parity? Or do judges do that through the good old common law method and appellate review?
1: Yeah, I have to say anecdotally, you know, in, when the mandatory, man- mandatory minimum sentences become relevant for me as a criminal practitioner, it's either because it's so disproportionate to some absurd fact scenario or because you're only trying to get away from it in horse trading into some other offense that allows you to get around it. And what we see all the time, I certainly see, is that even the mandatory minimum sentences are far below what the range actually is. So it, it's it's almost like placebo that's going on for the public to see that we're doing something, but the judges were already more severe. It's a very interesting type of contradiction.
0: It's such a good point. And um, if you look at the the cases where the Supreme Court of Canada has struck down a mandatory, mm-hmm. every single one, it's been on the basis of a reasonable hypothetical because right. the offender in the case at bar admits that actually, for me, this is not a grossly disproportionate sentence, right? right? And um, in fact, in most cases, the sentence that the offender received was longer than the mandatory minimum. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is not a popular point to make with my activist friends, mm-hmm. but it's important to emphasize that our mandatories in at least some areas have been fairly short- and why? But why have they been short? Because Parliament knows that we take proportionality review under Section 12 of the Charter seriously in Canada. We have done, right, since the Smith case really set the tone. And, you know, again, in the United States, proportionality review for a term of year sentence doesn't exist. Right? They've upheld a life without parole sentence for a third felony of, of stealing golf clubs. So in Canada, you know our mandatories have been fairly short, but that's because the judiciary has actually taken seriously its, its role of reviewing proportionality under Section 12.
1: So before we get away from prison law, I know we're going to jump around here a little bit, but... Um I wanted to ask you some questions because I know that you were involved uh, with uh, sex worker rights um, in the Bedford case. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So, you know, this goes stretches back to when I was articling at Faskins and my friend Aline uh, invited me to join the sex work rights advisory committee at Pivot Legal Society. And so uh, many people know about Pivot. It's a law reform group working in the downtown east side of Vancouver, working on issues of policing reform and homelessness and sex worker rights. And this is, of course, the community that was so horribly impacted by um, the phenomenon of missing and murdered women and by um, the crimes of Robert Picton. Mm-hmm. And so um, we started working on law reform for, for sex workers in this neighborhood, and we very quickly learned that you know, that the criminal laws were really standing in the way of them being able to do sex work more safely Mm -hmm. and that street based sex workers, instead of taking time to interview clients and negotiate in advance and exercise the safety strategies that they knew how to use, that they were spending their time avoiding police detection, you know, working in parts of the city that were unsafe, secluded and dark in order to avoid uh, police and so on. And so we really got we really through this work of connecting with sex workers and Hearing their experiences, saw very clearly that the criminalization of prostitution was a very misguided policy, that people were dying, that women were dying and women were facing violence that that they that you know that they could reduce but for the way the criminal law was working. And so that group, um, a group called Sex Workers United Against Violence, brought a case. They were actually they filed their charter challenge to the criminal code provisions before Bedford but wound up going to the Supreme Court of Canada on um, the issue of public interest standing because they wanted to litigate as a group. It was just really too dangerous and too difficult for an individual sex worker to step forward. And that that case, which is called Suave, liberalized the law of public interest standing in Canada, Um, an opinion, unanimous opinion, Um, by Justice Cromwell, articulated a test for public interest standing that would make it easier for people in the position our clients were in, marginalized people for whom individual litigation was just not realistic, um, for them to be able to litigate as a group, as a collective. Hmm. Um, Really important ruling with sort of far-reaching implications for lawyers acting on behalf of refugees, prisoners. You know, that was the precedent that was relied on in the B.C. Civil Liberties Association case that challenged the solitary laws. There wasn't an individual prisoner plaintiff in that case. They relied on the the suave precedent in order to be able to litigate that way. And then, of course, um, that same entity uh, intervened in the Bedford case, and I think made you know sometimes interventions at the Supreme Court of Canada. You wonder if they have much of an impact. But in that particular case, I think the court was very attentive to the submissions of sex workers coming from the downtown east side of Vancouver. The Bedford arguments, you know, there were many arguments advanced by the plaintiffs in Bedford. One was really about like economic liberty and the state should just kind of get out of the business of how I earn my living. Um, That really wasn't what motivated the court in striking these laws down. Really, the court was concerned with uh, the safety and security of sex workers. And to the extent criminal law was standing in the way of them exercising safety, strategies, the court struck the laws down. And that that perspective, I think, really did come from the street-based sex workers um, in the downtown east side of Vancouver. And so, yeah, I worked with Katrina Pacey and uh, a number of incredible lawyers. Joe Arve was kind of our senior counsel on that one. And we had... Uh, you know, we were very young lawyers working on that, and we really learned um, how to do it. (laughs) Right. And we were very inspired and connected uh, to our clients, inspired by and connected to our clients in that case. And so, yeah, that was uh, probably the most important experience I had as a young lawyer.
1: So let me ask you this, Lisa, obviously, uh, initiatives like that, getting involved with public organizations can have a profound effect on Canada as a whole, society. Um, what advice would you give to someone like yourself looking back to that time, you know, and, and wanting to say, I want to get involved? Are there yeah. particular organizations or is it a particular mindset? How do they do that? Because there's a lot of law students that listen to this program and think, I want to do something cool like that too.
0: For sure. <laughs> totally. Yeah. When I, my students talk to me about these these kinds of opportunities <laughs> all the time. I mean, I think actually the main thing is to make sure to say Yes. When an opportunity like this comes up and it will, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and you'll be very busy and you'll be trying to meet those billable hours or you'll be trying to be getting hired back as an articling student. And, you know, I remember myself, I was in my first or second year at Faskins and I was never very good at meeting those billable targets. It's actually amazing. I kept the job as long as I did without (laughs) getting fired because I was far off the mark, um, and, you know, but I just said, yes, like, did I want to go to that meeting at the end of the day that day? No, not really. But, um, but I found a way to say yes. And it really propelled me forward in so many ways as a lawyer. And, um, and I had this opportunities that would never have come to me in private practice, you know, where you're on such large teams on such complex cases, and it takes so many years before mm-hmm. you even are playing like an important role on cases often. So there are many organizations where you can contribute, right, and that are looking for people who can absorb disbursements. Right. right. <laughs> this is our favorite thing about big firm lawyers: is will you absorb the disbursements and, and and come and work with the Queen's Prison Law Clinic? You know, we're working on two Supreme Court of Canada cases with Stockwoods right now. Wow. And interventions, mm-hmm. I should say, and uh, you know they just stepped up and said, "We'll do it. We'll do it with you." And you know, I know the B.C. Civil Liberties Association does a ton of this work. As well and they're always looking for lawyers to do that work yeah I actually think there's a lot of opportunities but you look around for the organizations you let them know you're interested and you say yes when the opportunity arises
1: I think that's great advice for young lawyers and students is there any other tips that you've learned over the years just to try and keep yourself on track as far as achieving your goals and making sure you have the discipline or even energy to pursue what are big big issues and and big goals in, in your career
0: I have a very clear and simple answer to that question, and that is your friends. You know, my friends that have been with me through my career have saved me dozens and dozens of times. And, you know, they've saved me emotionally in many ways, (laughs) but they've also saved me from, you know, making a really dumb argument (laughs) in court or in the classroom. And um, so, you know, I always tell my law students this, law is so social, and the people who love law are very social and they help one another and they're working in community and they're always testing ideas and they're there supporting you through the difficulties and the stress and the exhaustion. Um, But they're also giving you so many shortcuts, you know, like why figure something out for yourself when you have a friend who's like the expert on this, who did a hearing on this last year, or, you know, I go into my Colleagues at Queens, I mean, I go into Don Stewart's office every day. (laughs) Don, please explain this area of law to me. And he does. But, you know, I go into so many of my friends and colleagues offices on a regular basis and say, please take me to the finish line. Mm -hmm. There's 10 cases I have to read here. And I just I need help. And I'm constantly asking for help. And I think I'm actually well-known for this, that that I am not shy to ask for help. I get people to read my draft papers. I phone someone and say, you have to explain this area of law to me. You know, um, I every year phone Ben Berger and say, can you explain criminal negligence to me again, please? Right, Uh, right. I still don't get it. So that's my main advice is ask for help and make friends, support your friends so that they'll support you.
1: Oh, that's great, and you know you're quite right because uh, the lessons I've always learned have been from lawyers' lounges and just talking to other lawyers. And one thing that's become very clear, especially in the criminal bar, is how willing people are to share their expertise and precedents and insights on things. And um, yeah, I, it's an impossible thing to do on one's own. Moving the social just a little bit to the side uh, and. And asking about how that integrates into your social media presence because you're one of uh, the lawyers that we've interviewed that does have a very active presence on social media and a lot of lawyers have become very uh, reluctant to get on board on that so I'm, i'm curious what benefits have you seen from your engagement with social media whether it be with lawyers media or the public in general
0: well, first, I should say, I think Twitter is really problematic. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's arguably partially responsible for giving us President Trump. Sure. Um, and it obviously is a place that houses and facilitates a lot of abuse and misogyny. And is contributing yeah. to polarization in society. And there are many times when I look at a discussion happening on Twitter and want to go crawl under my bed, um, so right. I don't know that overall the benefits that we thought it would bring uh, have come to pass.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, however, I still see, for me personally, more value than downside, and I get to I learn a lot about what's going on in the legal system on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get to see, you know, you know who's an expert on this or that. And so the Supreme Court case comes out. You're trying to ingest it, figure it out, learn how to teach it, learn how to write about it. And you know that so-and-so has been following this area. And you look at their account and you get a, it's, again, it's take me to the finish line because right, right. I don't have time. And so, you know, I do find it a very valuable resource. I like about it that you can interact and talk to people in a non-hierarchical way, mm-hmm. right? Like some really fancy professor, or fancy lawyer like Sean Robert. Show. yeah right yeah, sure. <laughs> we'll talk to you on Twitter and share ideas with you and so I like that I like the opportunity to share ideas with my students I you know I signal my views I share materials I do you know I often have my students in mind with tweeting you know you keep in touch with people you've lost touch with and so on so there's value to it um, but I'll tell you I don't get I mean I'm actually not that active on Twitter I mean I post but I don't spend my day arguing with people right. about stuff on twitter it's just it's a it, you could spend your whole career doing nothing but and there's occasional times where you'd learn something but often you know people are just like expressing the views that they have always held and will always help. sure sure
1: <laughs> okay so you're coming off of twitter you've just left a prison and now you're just trying to unwind what does Lisa Kerr do when you're just trying to get back into your right state of mind
0: Right. Um, Well, these days I just play with my baby, (laughs) which gets me in a very good state of mind pretty quickly. And, you know, I am a very, I have a very simple lifestyle. I read novels. I like literature. I like yoga and I practice yoga pretty seriously. And other than that, all of my time is spent nurturing friendships and spending time with my partner. And that's really it. I don't have big... I'm not a big traveler. I'm a terrible cook. I'm pretty pretty simple in wanting to just exercise, read, and be with the people I love.
1: How, how important do you see that as being able to function at your maximum capacity when you need to?
0: You know, the phrase maximum capacity is really not a part of my life right now. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: it sounds like hey, you've got a baby and... Uh...
0: Well, I'm in a, you know, I am getting from day to day. I am two months into a return to teaching from a maternity leave. Right. And so, you know, I am trying to meet my obligations on a daily (laughs) basis. And, you know, I hope to publish uh, more articles one day um, and manage my administrative and teaching responsibilities. But, you know, I think it's funny. I think that, you know, I'm 38 years old, I feel like your 20s are so much about having so much ambition, and trying to build your life and working so hard and trying to get to know people and, and just trying to get something right like trying to get the life that you that you think would be meaningful and then in your 30s you're really just trying to keep everything on track <laughs> you're just trying to manage the life that you've built mm-hmm. you know like i actually don't get a lot of time to like sit down and go what are my ambitions <laughs> right now right like right. no this is you know i have a 27 things that i need to do in this 4 hour time period and and you know if i don't if i don't do them there'll be some negative consequences so, so so it's, it's funny. I'm hoping the 40s maybe is a chance to to reassess life goals. And oh, I hate to break it to you. No, but. it doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> there isn't a, a calm after uh, the storm.
1: <laughs> it gets a bit better. Um, okay, so you know what? At least I'll, I'll finish up this podcast with a question I ask everyone, and that is if you had um, the power to change one major case in Canada or you had the power of an attorney general – If you could do one major change in Canada, what would you like to see happen?
0: So in prison law, you often don't have the luxury of dreaming big um, because you're often actually trying to do cases and law reform that would bring sort of a bare minimum of legality and humanity to the system that we have. So, you know, working to try and get time limits on solitary confinement, you know, that's not that's not a very inspiring dream. That's just saying if you're going to do a practice that can be, uh, you know, that can amount to torture for some people subjected to it, then you should have some legal rules that limit that practice. Right. So this is not this is not a very inspiring vision. You know, and saying that sex workers who in some cases are very marginalized and facing extraordinary dangers in the work that they do, saying that they should not be in an adversarial relationship with police but should be able to rely on police and not be criminalized. You know, again, I I call this sort of low-hanging fruit in terms of law reform work. And so I don't really get many opportunities to think, you know, where would I like to push the law in sort of an inspiring, proactive way? But one area that I follow very closely is around uh, the sentencing of Indigenous people Mm -hmm. and, you know, what's called Gladue sentencing, named after the famous case uh, in our system, And I think there's some really interesting things going on in this area, and I just would like to see the law continue to develop in some of the interesting and important jurisprudential sort of directions it's already taken. What I think is inspiring and significant about how Canada does this is is that we say at Sentencing that the collective experience of Indigenous people... You know, and that collective experience is one of, of course, experiencing colonialism and, you know, dislocation and, uh, the residential school system and many other state programs that have, have have harmed these communities in extraordinary ways, that we should think about that history at the moment of sentencing. And we should ask, how did history impact the defendant before the court? And, you know, in some cases, the answer is, you know, not that much. But in many cases, there are significant connections between what brought the defendant before the criminal courts and that collective experience. And I think that's remarkable that Canada does that. You know, when I talk to Americans about how we do that, they say, "Oh, well, that's a race-based distinction. That's inappropriate under the 14th Amendment." And that's because the US, you know, is their understanding of equality in in so many US courts and cases is a, is that very thin notion of formal equality, right? That the law should just treat everyone the same. But we know, of course, that 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 it's it's profoundly unfair to treat people the same when they've been so differently situated, right? And when the state has treated them so differently um, in our history. And so I think it's remarkable that Canada at sentencing is willing to have a sort of complicated conversation about how state action has generated much of this of the social disorder that leads to criminal offending. And I think if we if we push that analysis forward, we see that it applies to so many people who are in front of the criminal justice system, beyond indigenous people, and that if we really care about sentencing in light of actual culpability, right, which I really think is what Gladue is about, right, that that would profoundly change our analysis of sentencing and that, you know, if we truly understand where people come from We often do get to a place of seeing that they are, you know, deserving recipients of rehabilitation, of humane treatment, and of ultimately forgiveness.
1: Well, thank you very much, Lisa Kerr, bringing light to the darkest recesses of Canada. Appreciate you being on our podcast.
0: That was a real pleasure. Thank you for meeting with me.